Our Heavenly Father, I thank you so much for this day and for your goodness and blessings. Lord, you are a good God. You are better than we deserve, and we're so thankful for that. Lord, I pray for our time this morning. I pray for the community and the surrounding communities, Lord, that as a church we can be light and shining the light of your gospel and walking and living it out in our own lives, Lord, impacting the community, our families, our co-workers, for you, and to spread your message in love and gospel. Heavenly Father, this morning I pray for those around the world who are persecuted for the sake of your gospel. Lord, there are so many who, who hate the truth. Lord, and I pray for those who, who suffer and are persecuted for that, that their only source of joy can be found in Christ and to trust in him even in the difficulties. Lord, I pray for the message today, that it be, um, that it be truthful and faithful to your word, and that we may all be edified and blessed by that. In Jesus' name, amen. So again, John chapter 1, verses 35 to 51. We'll finish up the first chapter of John this morning. The next day, again, John was standing with two disciples, and he looked at Jesus as he walked by and said, Behold, the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. Jesus turned and saw them following and said to them, What are you seeking? And they said, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? He said to them, come and you will see. So they came and saw where he was staying, and they stayed with him that day, for it was about the tenth hour. One of the two who heard John speak and followed Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his own brother, Simon, and said to him, we have found the Messiah, which means Christ. He brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, You are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which means Peter. The next day, Jesus decided to go to Galilee. He found Philip and said to him, Follow me. Now, Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We have found him of whom Moses and the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nathanael said to him, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Philip said to him, Come and see. Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said of him, Behold, an Israelite indeed in whom there is no deceit. Nathanael said to him, How do you know me? Jesus answered him, Before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. Jesus answered him, Because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You will see greater things than these. And he said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you... You will see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man.
In our passage this morning, Jesus will have his initial interactions with his disciples, and four statements will be made about Jesus. And those four statements will be our focus today, but before we we get into the text, I think there are, are a couple of introductory comments to be made. First, I think it's important to consider what's happening in this passage. The Gospels of Matthew, Mark, and Luke all give stories of Jesus calling the first apostles. And we see Jesus interacting with some of these same men in this passage. Yet, the account in John is different than the accounts in the other Gospels. The other Gospels all talk of Jesus calling fishermen to follow him and how they immediately leave their nets and leave to follow him. That's not in John. The order in which the apostles meet Jesus is different in John. The circumstances are different. Why is there this discrepancy? My belief is that the events in John are recalling when Jesus first met the apostles, and the event in the other Gospels is at a different time where Jesus is actually calling them to follow him and be his apostles. When Jesus, in this passage, meets people like Peter and Andrew, he doesn't call them at the time to be his followers. If Jesus meets them in John and then calls them in the other Gospels, in some ways it makes more sense as far as why would they immediately would leave everything that they have and follow him. Because they already know him. Of the Gospel writers, John was the one who knew Jesus the best, And so it's possible that he had other information that the other writers did not have. Again, that's just speculation. A second point of introduction. As I've already said in our section this morning, we see four different people making statements about who Jesus is. We'll see them in our text, but very briefly, Jesus is called the Lamb of God, the Christ, the one to whom the law and prophets pointed, and he's called the Son of God and King of Israel. All of those affirmations about Jesus are important to our understanding about Jesus. Throughout his ministry, people are often puzzled by the Lord, what he says, what he does, and who he is. I think it's important to consider as we study our text this morning that these people did not just meet Jesus once and then suddenly know everything about him and his life and what he would do in his ministry John the Baptist and the disciples of Jesus, the people who will be introduced in this passage, they were fallen, sinful people. They were not all-knowing. During his own ministry, Jesus makes numerous statements that go right over the apostles' heads. He makes statements that at the time it's clear that the apostles just don't get. To give one example, Matthew 16, verses 21 to 24, Jesus is pointing forward to his death. From that time, Jesus began to show the disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, that shall never happen to you. But he turned to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me. For you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Jesus says what he must do. Peter says, you've got to stop talking like that. 
he doesn't get it. They weren't expecting his death, which is why they are all so distraught when he dies. They did not have a perfectly worked out theology during his ministry, let alone at the beginning of his ministry. Certainly, they saw something in Jesus very early on. They were drawn to Jesus. But the significance of the statements in our passage this morning is that we're able to read them in the light of the entire gospel. And with that, let's just jump right into our section this morning. John begins this section by moving time forward. I talked last week about how we're in, the, in, the, in a week in the ministry of Jesus, beginning in verse 35, says, The next day, day three, John was standing with two of his disciples. But you can see John the Baptist. Once again, John is very influential. His own ministry attracts followers. And he's with two of his disciples. Verse 36, he says, And he looked at Jesus as he walked by and said, Behold, the Lamb of God. John is echoing the same phrase that he used in verse 29. He's calling Jesus the Lamb of God. And that's our first affirmation about Jesus this morning. Jesus is the Lamb of God. The sacrificial system was instituted in the Old Testament. And part of what that did is it showed the price that needed to be paid for sin. And that sin needed to be atoned for. Sin required a blood sacrifice. It was a complicated and rigorous system. Sacrifices provided temporary atonement. Certain sins required certain sacrifices. Sacrifices required worthy animals. You couldn't just pick out an old goat that was about to die. Now you had to pick the best that you had. But all of that was meant to point to a greater sacrifice. Because it is Jesus who is the perfect and spotless lamb who is the true and worthy sacrifice. And so John calls him the lamb of God. He is the one who is sacrificed to atone for the sins of all who believe in him. Continuing in our text John the Baptist has just made this statement about Jesus. And then it says, the two disciples heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. John points to Jesus. With a respected religious leader like John, that would have been unthinkable to want to point your people to someone else. No one wants to lose people. A teacher doesn't want to lose students. A dentist doesn't want to lose patients. A hairdresser doesn't want to lose clients. A cub doesn't want to lose the division. (laughs) But John is happy to point people to Jesus. He's happy to point his followers to Jesus. Because that's his entire purpose. Being a witness to Christ. The text says that they followed Jesus. Verse 38, Jesus turned and saw them following and said to them, What are you seeking? Quite the question that Jesus asks. It flows into the story with two men following Jesus to ask, what are you seeking, or what do you want? But it's also a probing question for anyone seeking to follow Jesus. What are you seeking? What do you want from Jesus? There are many reasons why people try to turn to religion or turn to Jesus. But not all of them are good reasons. If you're a follower of Christ, why Are you following him? 
Being a follower of Jesus is an end in itself. You follow Jesus because you get Jesus. You get God. That is the greatest promise that the Lord gives to us. Unworthy sinners are invited to know the God of the universe. But sadly, that's not always what's really behind a person's heart and their desire to know Christ. What are you seeking? Some people follow Jesus because they have all sorts of issues and they think that life will get easier. And for a while, that might be true. But you're still you. You're still a sinful person. You still have various habits and areas of sin that aren't productive. And life is hard. You get Jesus. What about when the going gets tough? Because the going always gets tough. And then where does that leave you? For some people, and I'm sure we know people like this, they're left disillusioned with faith because it didn't give them what they wanted. It didn't do for them what they wanted. What are you seeking? The mistake is that some people are looking for the wrong thing. Some are led to Jesus because they're sold a false gospel and believe that that material blessings and physical health are always the will of God for a believer. It's often called the prosperity gospel. It's not biblical Christianity. It turns our desires to stuff and not to God. Because struggles still come. If our hope is rooted in what we think Jesus will give to us, it leads to a faith that's superficial. Plenty of Christians see the flaw and prosperity theology. Yet in various ways, I think we're still so often drawn to it, especially in America. Because in our heart of hearts, there's this temptation to think that we deserve things to be good. We deserve good things. Because we like to think that we're good. We pray, we serve, we give, we try to follow God. Things should be good. It can be easy to get angry with God when things don't go the way that we want them to. The Bible never promises that the Christian life will be an easy one. In fact, time after time after time, it promises the opposite. The Apostle James said to count it all joy when you meet trials of various kinds. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. You can find verses on suffering on almost every book in the New Testament. Most notably, it was Jesus who suffered unjustly and died for our sins. He told the disciples in John chapter 15, If the world hates you, know that it hated me before it hated you. The apostle Paul was in prison many times throughout his ministry and life, and later executed for his faith. But he said in Romans 5, 3, We rejoice in our sufferings. John the Baptist, who we talked about last week, who's in our section again today, executed. The apostles who are named in our passage this morning 
martyrs because the world hates the gospel. The Christian life is hard. And life is hard. What are you seeking? Certainly I'm not saying that there's anything wrong with blessings. Christians often do enjoy blessings in life. God is a good and gracious God. As we study Proverbs in Sunday school, living godly lives according to biblical wisdom and principles oftentimes will result in fruit and blessing in your life. But what about when it doesn't? Many faithful people follow the Lord throughout their entire lives and continue to struggle and to face illness and injury and horrible circumstances. What are you seeking? I'm not saying that we should desire a life of hardship and drudgery. I'm not saying that we should want to be miserable. That's not the life that God wants for his people. Joy is a fruit of the Spirit. But my point is that if Jesus is everything to you, that you can find joy even in the hardship, even in the suffering, even in the sorrow, even in the pain. What are you seeking? Is Jesus your chief love and the thing that matters most to you? Do you want to worship Jesus as your Lord and Savior? Or if you're being honest with yourself, do you treat him like a genie? you just look to to grant your wishes. As we continue in verse 38, we see their response to Jesus' question. He asked, what are you seeking? They respond to the question with a question. And they said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? They don't answer the question. As they try to follow Jesus, perhaps it's, it's too difficult to spell out exactly what they're seeking. But they ask where he's staying in the hopes of being able to be with him and talk to him and be in his presence. And Jesus says, come and you will see. Jesus invites them in. He invites them into a relationship. He invites everyone into a relationship, into knowing him. Come and you will see. The text says, so they came and saw where he was staying and they stayed with him, they stayed with him that day for it was about the 10th hour. So they go and spend time with Jesus. The text says that they stayed with him that day. It was about the 10th hour. That doesn't mean that it was 10 o'clock. Based on the ancient uh, reckoning of time, it's actually probably more like 4 p.m. That brings day three to a close. It's the ancient world. They don't have cars. They don't have lights, really. So wherever Jesus is staying, they go to stay with him. And so as we continue in the text, we come to day four. It's the next day. One of the two who, one of the two who heard John speak and followed Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. We're given a name of one of the two men who follows Jesus. Interesting that the author only gives one of their names. We don't know the identity of the second of the two men. It's a commonly held belief that it's none other than the Apostle John who wrote the Gospel of John. He never mentions himself in this book, 
So a lot of people, again, there's no way to know for sure, but a lot of scholars and people throughout the years um, think that it's John. But in any event, we're given the name Andrew, and we're told that he's Simon Peter's brother. Simon Peter, better known as Peter, would become one of the best known of the disciples, a leader within the group, a part of Jesus' inner circle. And so for Andrew, he's actually identified based on his relationship to Peter. They're brothers. Even though Peter has not yet been mentioned in this gospel, the Apostle John assumes that his audience would be familiar with Peter. Verse 41, we see that Andrew actually evangelizes his brother and tells him about Jesus. He first found his own brother, Simon, and said to him, We have found the Messiah, which means Christ. That's the second affirmation that this passage gives us about Jesus. Last week, we also saw the, saw the word Christ, but it came in relationship to John the Baptist and how John the Baptist was specifically telling people that he was not the Christ. In this section, Andrew has been pointed to Jesus by John the Baptist, and he has spent time with Jesus, and he tells his brother, we have found the Christ. I made this point last week, but the words Messiah and Christ mean the same thing. Messiah is Hebrew. Christ comes from Greek. Both of those mean anointed. And I also said last week, that this anointing referred to Old Testament offices, such as the king, the high priest, and some of the prophets. They were anointed with oil at the beginning of their ministries. And the promised one who God would send in the Old, in the Old Testament was also said to be anointed. And so Andrew goes to his brother and says that they have found the anointed one. Again, that's not saying that Andrew knows everything about Jesus, everything about his ministry, that he... That's not saying that he yet understood Jesus' sacrificial death. He just sensed a special anointing in Jesus. Kings, high priests, and prophets. People did not understand in the first century that Jesus came to fulfill all of those offices. But throughout his ministry, that's what we see. Jesus is the king in the line of David. The kingdom of God that Jesus ushers in is a theme in the Gospels. In the Gospel of Luke, when the angel appears to Mary and tells her that she's going to give birth to Jesus, the angel talks of Jesus in Luke 1.33 and says, He will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. Revelation 21.15 speaks of Jesus and says, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ and he shall reign forever and ever. A king is one who rules, and Jesus is the king of kings, who rules and reigns with eternal sovereignty. But Jesus is also the high priest. The priest in the Old Testament was the mediator between God and man who offered sacrifices. Jesus is the ultimate and great high priest. He is the one who is worthy to bring us to God and who is able to offer the ultimate sacrifice himself. And Jesus is a prophet. A prophet is one who speaks the word of God, one who foretells the future, and one who speaks with authority. Jesus does all of those things in his ministry. He speaks with authority. His ministry shows that he has authority over nature, 
over life and death. There's a passage from Deuteronomy, quoted it last week, which foretells of a great prophet, Deuteronomy 18.15. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. Now, originally that was addressing Moses and people who would come after him, but it ultimately points forward still to the great prophet, Jesus. He's the fulfillment of all of those offices. One thing that's important to understand about those offices in the Old Testament is that they were fulfilled by different people. The king was not the priest or a prophet. The priest was not a king or a prophet. And the prophet was not a king or a priest. In fact, the first king of Israel, a man named Saul, did irreversible damage to his reign by trying to take on a priestly function as the king. Yet all three of those offices all three of those offices converge on Jesus, the anointed one, the Messiah, the Christ. Verse 42, Jesus meets Peter. The text says, he brought him to Jesus, referring to Andrew. He brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, you are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which means Peter. The words Cephas and Peter both mean rock. This is a foretelling of the leadership that Peter will have. Right from the onset of his ministry, Jesus is stating this of Peter, although there's no further elaboration given here. Verse 43, we come to a new day, day five. The next day, Jesus decided to go to Galilee. He found Philip and said to him, follow me. Now, Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. That's the only person in this passage to whom Jesus says, follow me. We also find out that Philip is from the same town as Andrew and Peter. Just as Andrew was quick to tell Peter about Jesus, Philip will also tell someone about Jesus. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We have found him of whom Moses and the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. That brings us to our third affirmation about Jesus. He is the one to whom the scriptures point. We don't know exactly why Philip sensed this in Jesus, just like we don't really know why Andrew thought that Jesus was the Messiah. But that's not really what matters to the story. What matters is what's being affirmed about Jesus. Where Philip talks of Jesus as being the one to whom Moses wrote in the law and the prophets... It's referring to the scriptures of the Old Testament. Jesus came to fulfill the Old Testament. Everything that Jesus does or says in his ministry has resonance in the Old Testament. He fulfilled hundreds of prophecies. He fulfilled the law. He fulfills the promises of God. All throughout the Bible, God is working his plan and his will. None of that is by random chance. The Old Testament is not just a bunch of stories or myths. It's the real story of God's work in his people, which culminates in Jesus fulfilling the Old Testament to bring redemption to the world. In John 5, Jesus is talking to a group of religious leaders, and they miss Jesus for who he is. John 5, 36 to 38, Jesus says, The works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I am doing... Bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. 
And the Father who sent me has himself borne witness about me. His voice you have never heard, his form you have never seen, and you do not have his word abiding in you. For you do not believe the one whom he has sent. All of it points to Jesus. The scripture points to Jesus in his life and ministry. And his life and ministry points to the scriptures that he came to fulfill. That's something else that matters about these affirmations that are being made about Jesus. Throughout history, lots of people have claimed to be significant religious figures. Some people have even claimed to be divine. It's true today, and it was true in Jesus' day. What validates Jesus is not what John the Baptist said or what Andrew said or what Peter said, but what matters is what Jesus did, fulfilling prophecies and displaying his glory. His life matters because he points us to life. His death matters because in that, all who believe in him are dead to sin. And his resurrection matters because that is the only hope of eternal life. Jesus literally died and rose so that all who believe in him, when we die, can literally have eternal life with Jesus. We can live because he lives. Everything in the Bible is about Jesus and points to Jesus. Philip addresses Jesus by his hometown and by his earthly father. We have found him of whom Moses and the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Those were helpful ways to designate a person in the Old Testament in, in ancient times. You would establish their identity by where they were from and to whom they were related. Nathaniel said to him, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? There was nothing special about Nazareth. Philip just finished talking about how Jesus came to fulfill the Old Testament. And by the way, he's from a town that's mentioned exactly zero times in the Old Testament. Can anything good come from Nazareth? Imagine if you were in ancient times, if you heard someone telling you about the promised fulfiller of the Old Testament, and they'd come into the world, and you're like, tell me more. And they say, well, he's from Decatur. And in the event, Philip, Philip does not get bogged down in a debate. Jesus can stand on his own. His life, his ministry, his teachings can stand on their own. Philip said to him, come and see. Perhaps Nathaniel is still a little bit incredulous about all of this, but then he meets Jesus in verse 47. Jesus saw Nathaniel coming toward him and said of him, Behold, an Israelite in whom there is no deceit. Jesus is making a reference to Nathaniel's character. Verse 48, Nathaniel said to him, how do you know me? Jesus answered him, before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. That doesn't really have a whole lot of meaning to us. And we don't really know exactly what that meant to Nathaniel, but it strikes a chord with Nathaniel. Whatever the experience was for Nathaniel near the fig tree, 
It must have been significant because it communicates something very profound. And he responds in verse 48, Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. And that's our fourth statement about Jesus. The Son of God and the King of Israel. And as with the other statements people make in this passage, Nathaniel quite possibly does not realize the full scope of what he's saying. For instance, in calling Jesus the King of Israel, this may have been referring to the first century hope that the Messiah would be an earthly king who would restore a geographical kingdom at the time. That wasn't why Jesus came. Jesus is a king, as we've already discussed. I think it's important to our own life, to our own faith, to continually be reminded and mindful of the kingship of Christ. We so often get so stressed out by the things of the world. The world is a dark place. But Jesus is the king. Some of us get caught up in politics. There's nothing wrong with following politics, following current events. But whoever is leading locally or in the state or nationally, whoever that is, is not our ultimate hope because Jesus is the king. In the Old Testament, they had kings who led Israel. But it is the Lord who is on the throne. And Nathanael calls Jesus the Son of God. In verse 34, John the Baptist had already called Jesus the Son of God. That's a significant designation for Jesus. It shows the closeness of the relationship between Jesus and God. In the Old Testament, Israel is collectively referred to as God's Son. Also in the Old Testament, kings of Israel are referred to as God's Son. But in Jesus, he is the greater Israel and the greater king making him the greater son. Jesus is called God's one and only son in John 3.16. And the sonship of Christ to God will continue to be discussed throughout this gospel. Verse 50, Jesus answered him, Because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You will see greater things than these. And he said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Borrowing an idea from Colin Cruz and his commentary on John, Jesus is alluding to Genesis chapter 28. It's a story about Jacob and his brother Esau, and Esau is chasing him. Jacob stops for the evening and he has a dream, quoting from Genesis 28, 12. And he dreamed, and behold, there was a ladder set up on the earth, and the top of it reached to heaven. And behold, the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. So he dreams of a ladder coming from heaven, heaven where the angels are going up and down the ladder. Genesis twenty-eight sixteen. Then Jacob awoke from his sleep and said, Surely the Lord is in this place, and I did not know it. And he was afraid and said, How awesome is this place! This is none other than the house of God, and this is the gate of heaven. So he considers the place where he has this dream to be a sacred place. And the story continues that Jacob named that place Bethel, which means house of God. Because that was the place, Bethel was the place where Jacob experienced God. So then you have Jesus. 
And he talks of the heavens opening up. He uses the same language as the Genesis story. What Jesus is saying is that he is where we go to experience God. Instead of encountering God in a place, we encounter God through a person, his son. And the greater things that we see than Jacob's ladder is the life and ministry of Jesus. It's his teachings and signs which point to his power and glory. It's his cross where he died to redeem sinners and the life to which he redeems. Jesus is the lamb. He is the worthy sacrifice for our sins. Jesus is the Christ. He is the anointed prophet, priest, and king. Jesus is the one to whom the scriptures testify. And Jesus is the king and the son of God. He's all of those things and more. All throughout this opening section of John, we've seen so many claims about who Jesus is. Next Sunday, we begin the next chapter in this book. And the next chapter in the life of Jesus we see the beginning of his ministry and the start of a journey that affirms everything that's been said about him. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your son, that he is the Lord, that he is the word made flesh, that he is the tabernacle among us, that he is your presence with us, that he is the one who comes down from heaven Lord, that he is the, the anointed Savior, the Lamb who takes the penalty of our sins, the one to whom your word points. He is the King, and he is your Son. Lord, we thank you so much for the salvation that comes through Jesus and knowing of his life and death and resurrection. Lord, may our lives be living sacrifices to you through what Jesus has done for us. And may we walk in faith. May Jesus be the most precious thing in our hearts and lives. May we live that out daily. In Jesus' name, amen.